Galatians 2. Not everything in the Christian world or in our Christian life is a battle. We always battle against the flesh and uh, as the scriptures dictate it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're always battling against these foes in our lives, but the Christian life is not one characterized by a battle. It's intended to be characterized by peace and rest, not contention and conflict. Over these past couple weeks, we have learned some very important truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we learned what the gospel is. We used 1 Corinthians 15 as our baseline for that, where Paul says, I have written unto you the same that I have received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Last week, we considered the need not only to trust the gospel for our own lives, to trust the gospel as it pertains to our salvation, but to trust the gospel as we share it. To trust that whether we are capable of expressing the gospel properly or whether we we feel as though we have the charisma or the ability in any way to say what needs to be said, to trust that if we say what God's word says, that the gospel can do the rest. We're not responsible to convict hearts. We're not responsible. We we don't need to guilt or manipulate anyone into accepting the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. It stands alone in its capacity to convince men of their sin and of their need to recognize and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our job to tell. So we know the gospel We receive the gospel, we share the gospel, we trust the gospel. But as Paul continues in Galatians 2, which is where we'll find ourselves this evening in verses 1 through 10, we find as well the extreme necessity, not just of trusting the gospel and sharing the gospel and believing the gospel, but of, in a manner of speaking, defending the gospel. And and as I say that, defending the gospel, um, you'll, you'll have to bear with me. Uh, it's not really defending the gospel as much as it is holding fast to the gospel and then allowing truth to defend itself against those that would seek to change it, against those that would seek to manipulate it, against those that would seek to confuse it, add to it, or detract from it. We've said already many times the gospel is the foundation of all redemption, and it is. If the gospel is man's exclusive hope, and it is, then we must understand that the further the gospel is lost beneath the waves of false claims and the waves of ideologies, and more focus is put on wrong elements of what it is that gets a man to God, the more people are lost to an eternity in hell. Our resistance to changing or marginalizing the gospel must regard no person. It doesn't matter what authority a person has. It doesn't matter how much influence he wields. It doesn't matter how much education he has, whether it's the church or whether it's otherwise. If a person's message or a church's message is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, his message must be challenged through the truth. And this is a battle that won't end until the day we get to heaven. Throughout the 2,000 years of the church, the battle over the purity of the gospel has raged in every age. It is indeed, in a manner of speaking, until Christ finishes the job, it is a never-ending battle. It demands our vigilance. It demands our preparation. The epistle of Galatians is a window into this battle in the early church. But it wasn't the first battle fought. Galatians was not the first time Paul had to defend the gospel. In fact, in our text today, Paul is going to speak directly to his first battle within the church concerning the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read together the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2, which is what we'll focus on this evening, and then we'll walk through it carefully. 
Paul says, uh, continuing the context from chapter 1, Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, and that uh, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter unto the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. We step into the text today with the phrase, then 14 years after. And we must immediately establish the context within which we are operating. Last time we were together, we finished at the end of chapter 1 with Paul in Tarsus. Recall, we mentioned that after Paul was saved, he spent three years in Damascus and Arabia. And in that time, he learned by revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of um, how the Old Testament applies and this, the, the doctrine of the church age. And following that, following those three years, the scriptures tell us he went to Jerusalem where he spent 15 days or so. And Barnabas introduced him to a couple of the apostles and some of um, the, the leaders in the church there. And then he was soon ushered out of Jerusalem because of all the Pharisees and Sadducees and Sanhedrin and such that wanted to kill him and was ushered into um, eventually Tarsus. And he would eventually rest in Tarsus, which was where he was born and where he had come from originally, until Barnabas found him at least some four years later. All in all, between when Paul got saved and when his ministry began was at least seven years. So as we ask this question, 14 years from what, um, there are several theories as to what this might be, two of which are most acceptable. Either 14 years after his first visit to Jerusalem or 14 years after his initial conversion. At first glance, we might be tempted to say, well, 14 years after his visit to Jerusalem. This makes sense considering in the context, the last thing he spoke of was his visit to Jerusalem. But as we broaden the context, we recognize that the flow of the this argument or the flow of Paul's message here really began when he began speaking of his conversion. And so it does seem more um, likely from a contextual, a grammatical, even a Greek standpoint that the 14 years harkens back to his original conversion because he's speaking now of everything having to do with his conversion, his belief in the gospel, and how he came to his understanding of the gospel. And remember, what he's arguing here is that he did not come to an understanding of the gospel through any outside means, through any man. He came through direct revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that includes his time in Arabia and Damascus. That includes his time in Jerusalem. And that, then that includes his time in Tarsus. So throughout all of that time, he shows that there was never really a time where he could have been directly influenced by other church people, as it were, in his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's proving that his gospel is not tainted, his gospel is not corrupt. That is what Paul is doing here. He's defending the fact that the gospel came to him directly by Jesus Christ. And as he works out that purpose in Galatians 2, he's going to re reveal that his principled loyalty to the message of the gospel, to the purity of the gospel, not only came to him free from other influence, but operated 
free from other influence. He did not allow the influence of other apostles, the influence of other ideas to change what he knew to be true from the revelation of Jesus Christ about the truth and the purity of the gospel. And Paul recounts a time, likely 14 years after his conversion, where he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also with Titus. And he says that in verse 1, that he went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me as well. We know little about Titus from scriptures as uh, the man. We know that he was a well-known associate of Paul uh, who likely traveled with him on Paul's first missionary journey and likely subsequent journeys as well. The name Titus is of Latin origin, very Roman. He may have been Roman, he may have been Greek. Either way, he was definitely from that northern area of perhaps Rome, perhaps um, likely the Galatian area itself. There's an inspired epistle written to Titus called Titus, right? And that was Paul writing to this young man uh, and likely uh, one of the final books that Paul wrote, epistles that Paul wrote before his death. This journey, the journey to Jerusalem that he speaks of here, this 14 year after Jerusalem, um, at least 14 years after, likely took place between his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey. So remember, it's probably about seven years after he's converted that he, he is brought by Barnabas to Antioch. They're commissioned to go into the Gentile world and they make their travels. This is likely something that happened. They, they learned of their need to go to Jerusalem during this first missionary journey. And it happened between the first and the second journeys that Paul ended up with Barnabas and Titus in Jerusalem. And this visit to Jerusalem is known as the Council of Jerusalem. And it serves as one of the defining moments in the doctrine of the early church. And before we move forward in the text, I would like us to hearken back to that account and take a few moments to consider what happened according to the book of, of Acts in Jerusalem. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts 15. I'm not going to have the verses up on the screen. I am going to read a chunk of the, the passage, however, so I'll invite you, if you are willing, to turn there, as we'll be there for a little while, and we'll turn back to Galatians chapter 2 in just a few minutes. I'm going to read to you the first 15, or excuse me, the first five verses, and then we'll discuss it a little bit. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phenis and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So the idea that as we find, the situation as we find it is this. Paul and Barnabas are out ministering and they run across a man who had come from Judea. So he had been, uh, he had been uh, sourced in, in a church of Judea and he had come from that church and was preaching that a man cannot be saved unless he submits himself to the circumcision of Moses. This is clear heresy. Paul and Barnabas contend with him, and uh, it concerns them enough that they and certain others determine that they need to physically go down to the church at Jerusalem, talk with the elders and apostles there, and clear up this matter to make sure that this man's doctrine was spurious, and it wasn't actually what was being taught in the church at Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they, they spent time as they were going, confirming the churches and, and uh, announcing Gentile salvation and people rejoiced with them. When they got to Jerusalem, they began declaring to the body, to the church, what God had done to the Gentile world. And as they were doing so, they were received of the apostles and of the elders, but they were met with resistance. And they were met with resistance by a particular group of Pharisees who believed that Jesus was Messiah but also believed 
that circumcision and obedience to the law was a necessary part of the Christian life. Now, as he describes it in verse 5, it does not explicitly say that these Pharisees demanded circumcision for salvation, like the, like the false teacher they met in their journeys did. But, as we compare it to Galatians, we'll find that most likely this was indeed what these Pharisees were at least largely leaning toward the idea that that circumcision of Moses and the law of Moses were integral to being a believer. We continue, look with me now in verse 6, and we'll we'll continue for some ways through verse 22. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men, among the brethren. So the elders and the apostles get together to settle this controversy. And as they come together to settle this controversy, the elders recognize God's work, recognize the truth of the gospel by grace through faith plus nothing. Peter says, this is clearly what God has ordained. And he um, quotes the Old Testament. He recognizes that the Gentiles are, are called by God to come to the same faith as the Jews. Um, that and, and I love when he says here, now therefore, verse 10, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the necks of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We couldn't even handle the yoke of the law. Why would we then place that yoke upon the, the converts of the Gentiles? We couldn't even handle the law properly. Why would we throw that guilt upon this new generation in the church? And James makes a personal request. They, they accept Paul and Barnabas and, and accept the gospel that they're teaching. And then he makes a personal request that they would write to the churches and tell them, yes, we, we recognize that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, plus nothing, but that they would still avoid meat offered to idols, idolatry itself, fornication, strangled animals, which would still be eating the animals with the blood, all deep characteristics of the heathen cultures of the day, things that would directly oppose the message of the gospel in the hearts of men, even if it weren't forbidden under the liberty of Christ. Things that would hinder the gospel going forth. And so this, the, these letters went out decreeing these things, making these requests. And this misunderstanding that could have led to deep false doctrine or doctrinal error in the church was by and large undone. Now, having this context, let's go back to Galatians chapter 2, and let's see uh, how Paul describes this same period of history as he speaks to the churches of Galatia. 
So he talks about going up with Barnabas and with Titus to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion. And he says in verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that the gospel which I preached unto the, among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Paul says that his purpose in going up to Jerusalem was to communicate unto the church the gospel which he preached among the Gentiles. And as he began, he recognized very quickly that they needed to start out smaller. He began to proclaim the gospel, and as we read from Acts chapter 15, there was a contingency of Pharisees that were deeply disturbed by this, and what could have happened here is a grand church split, right? This could have been the first church split in history where the Pharisaical believers said, no, 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 this is not what we like, not what we believe, and um, then you could have had that, that grace group, right? Who believed in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And it could have sent the church in two opposite directions. So instead, Paul says that as he began to communicate with them, they went private with this. They went into a smaller group to discuss this among the leaders. And then they would be able to rightly disseminate their understanding to the rest of the church and avoid the potential of a split or the deep potential of controversy. So he says that he communicated these things to them privately. The leaders of the church were careful to maintain this um, smaller communication until such time as they could present a unified front to the church as a whole. And that's what Paul says. He says, I'm, I'm communicating it privately, lest all of this time getting to Jerusalem and everything that I've sought to do by getting there be undone by controversy. That's the last thing Paul wanted. And so in verse 3, he says, but neither Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. This was very significant, very significant that Paul brought with him to this Jerusalem council, the man named Titus. Titus did not feel compelled following his salvation to receive circumcision after his conversion. And Paul was eager to show the elders in Jerusalem and all of the church, many of whom had never actually met an uncircumcised Christian. They'd, they'd been in Judea. Everyone that was getting saved in Judea were Jews already. They'd been circumcised likely the eighth day of their, of their life. So they were all circumcised. That was, it was a moot point for the, the, Christians in Judea. So he brings Titus, this uncircumcised Gentile convert, to show that the same marks of salvation, the fruit of the Spirit, everything that, that Titus was, was indicative of a believer. Titus likely testified of his faith, testified of his knowledge of Christ, testified of the things that God had done using him as a tool to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this stood in deep contrast to a man like, say, Timothy. Timothy was also a, a, a Greek. He had a, a Greek father and a Jewish mother, but he was a man who had lived up in, in the area of Galatia. And when he got saved, he was um, compelled by Paul to be circumcised, not in order to validate his salvation, but in order that he might have a greater ministry among the Jewish people. And so in order to have a greater ministry, to not be a stumbling block to the Jews, Timothy did get circumcised and did align himself with the Mosaic expectation. And neither one is wrong. That Timothy got circumcised, not a problem. That Titus didn't, not a problem. And, and this is the idea here. And we see that account of Ti uh, Timothy being circumcised in Acts 16, if you're interested in looking into that a little bit more. But neither of these were a problem. Paul simply brought Titus here, maybe Timothy was with him as well, in order that they could see the marks of a believer in an uncircumcised man. So Paul's reason for bringing Titus, we've mentioned, but he states it in verse 4. And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Paul states that within the church were false brethren. Men brought in unawares. This is likely a reference to those Pharisees that we read about in Acts 15. Men who were clinging to the law, seeking to conform the whole church to their concept of the gospel. And he says that they came in privily, secretly, to spy out their liberty. To, to, to 
discern what they, um, what, what was being preached by Paul in order that they could stir people up against the liberty that is found in Christ. Bring them back under the bondage of the law. That's what Peter called it in Acts 15, right? A yoke which his fathers could not even bear. Why bring them under that yoke? It's a bondage. And then it's the same word that Paul uses here, the idea of bondage, the bondage of the law. And I want to carefully note here the fact that Paul calls these men false brethren, plainly stating that these are not true believers. And that because they have not accepted the true gospel, their gospel is tainted. And if one's gospel is tainted, if one has received the gospel on the terms of salvation plus circumcision or salvation plus Mosaic law, then one has not truly received the gospel. And if a man refuses the true gospel, he cannot be a true believer. A false gospel is a message of bondage. The true gospel is a message of liberty. Paul states in verse 5, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul says that he and Barnabas and Titus, when they heard about these men who were trying to yoke the church under the bondage of the law, he says, we did not give place. We did not subordinate ourselves. We did not relent. We did not just step back and be quiet while they gave their side of the story. This was the battle. There was no need to be quiet because what they were saying was patently false. They knew in this battle they could not waver for it was a battle for truth and truth must never be compromised. And notice Paul's perspective here. He recognized that if he, as a representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world, if he yielded ground, then he would not just be doing the gospel a disservice. He would not just be doing himself a disservice, the church a disservice. He would be doing a disservice to the truth around the world. If he yielded, he said, I didn't yield so that the gospel could continue. If, If... I yield this ground, he says, the gospel will be hindered. But Paul says in verse 6, But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Paul makes two very important points here. He says that those who had some level of authority did not change anything concerning how he preached the gospel. And the first point he makes, Paul makes mention of the fact that the men whom he stood before were indeed leaders of the church. But the fact that they were leaders of church didn't make any difference to him at all. Paul didn't care who they were. He wasn't coming to get their permission to preach the gospel or their blessing to preach the gospel. Now, he came in submission because he knew to submit to those who were in authority over him. But his submission to their authority never in any context drew him toward the expectation that he would change his message. Didn't matter what they were going to say when he gave the message that he gave. The gospel was true that he preached. He was there to Hold fast the message of the gospel against false brethren teaching to change the gospel. But do note that Paul also did come to meet with the elders, though not with the intention of changing his message. He came so that he could clarify once for all what the gospel was that was being preached in Judea and help the church as a whole unite. He was not there to divide. He was there to help Unite. Now, second, Paul mentions that these men added nothing to him. In other words, my gospel, which I preached, he said, I went there with a certain gospel, I left with the same gospel. They changed nothing. Nothing about his interaction in the Jerusalem Council changed what he preached. Why? Because, and this is the point he's making, remember, through, Gen- uh, uh, through Galatians 1 and 2, because what he preached to them was already the true gospel. He preached the true gospel to them the first time, which means when he went to Jerusalem to talk about the gospel and he left, he hadn't changed his mind about the gospel because it was true. It didn't need to be changed. Nothing needed to be changed. The gospel was true. So if we may put it another way, Paul said he stood before influential men in the church. 
that he really didn't care who they were as far as authority was concerned or what they thought because it was God who mattered to him. God regards no person. And this gospel was true whether these others believed it or not. And when he told these influential church leaders what he was preaching, they agreed with his message, they verified his results, and they accepted him into their fellowship. So everything went well. Verses 7 and 8, he says, Contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, and the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, or as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Paul states that not only did they recognize the gospel to be the same and the gospel to be valid, but they also solidified their understanding that God had ordained Paul to be a apostle to the Gentiles, in the same way God had ordained Peter to be an apostle to the circumcision or to the Jews. And this recognition on their part led them to understand that though Paul had a different emphasis in his gospel to the Gentile world, perhaps he presented these truths in a different manner, one that was far, far more detached from the principles of Old Testament law. He was still preaching the same message and the power and ordination of God was upon him to do so. In fact, Paul says in, in verse 7, excuse me, in verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go into the heathen and they into the circumcision. Peter, James, and John, men who were pillars of the church. The pillars are the, the posts upon which the building stands. Peter says, uh, Paul says that Peter, James, and John, called Cephas here instead of Peter, but it's the same name. Peter, James, and John were the pillars of the church. They were the ones upon whom the church, they, they were the ones to whom the church looked for guidance and leadership. It says they recognized that Paul was made by Christ the apostle to the Gentiles in the same way Peter was made by Christ the apostle to the Jews. And this recognition on their part led them to understand that this different emphasis was okay. And so they extended to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, said, yes, we are validating the ministry of Paul and of Barnabas. And this is very important as Paul is writing to Galatians, right? The Judaizers are in the region of Galatia and they are telling the churches of the Galatians who heard this gospel preached by Paul, salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. And now they're hearing, get circumcised, follow the law of Moses. And Paul says, wait a minute. When I preach the message, I preach salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. Then I heard about this Judaizing. So I went to Jerusalem and Peter and James and John validated that my message was the true gospel. That the, the, the most Jewish of Jewish leaders in the church validated that you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. Validated that you don't need to follow the law of Moses to be saved. You can't have any more authority under the, the Jewish flavor of Christianity than Peter, James, and John. You can't have more authority than that. And these are the men that said Paul's gospel is true. These are the men that accepted Paul and Barnabas into their fellowship. These are the men that saw Titus, the uncircumcised Greek Christian, and said, yes, this man has the marks of salvation. Yes, this man is a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying it is foolish for you to think that when I preached a gospel given by Jesus Christ without any influence. When the churches of Judea, the ones who, who came out of Judaism, heard my gospel, they validated that it was the truth. And here are these men w operating in contradiction to the church in Jerusalem, in contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're believing them. And you're following them. And literally, he's just kind of saying, stop it. Stop this foolishness. This is foolishness. Everything points to the fact that the gospel which they're telling you is not a gospel. It is a false gospel. Now, Paul does recount that the group did in fact ask one thing of him in Jerusalem. That they would remember the poor. 
He says, I was already forward to do this. In fact, he, the, this time in Jerusalem was actually not the first time he'd been back to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem council was not the first time he'd been back to Jerusalem since he was first there 14 years earlier. He, he was there 14 years earlier. He went to Tarsus. They started their missionary journey. They took a collection for the saints, the poor, the poor in Jerusalem, and they delivered that collection to Jerusalem. And then they continued on their way. And then they went to the Jerusalem council. And so we see that he has already been forward to do this. And in fact, in his second missionary journey, he'll be even more forward in this regard. And his third, he will continue to press the point that these churches need to be giving to the poor, particularly in Jerusalem. This was the area where there was the maximum amount of persecution in the church. The Sanhedrin were being ruthless. Jews were losing their jobs, losing their families, losing their lives over the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church in Jerusalem was poor. The church in Jerusalem, these, these men and these women had nothing because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. And so Peter, James, and John said, this is our request of you. You say, well, that's not what, what the book of Acts says. The book of Acts says that they requested that there would be no idolatry, meat offered to idols, fornication, strangling, and eating of blood. Well, that's true, but that's what the church wrote unto the other churches about. That's not what they requested of Paul. The only thing they requested of Paul was that he remember the poor. When they wrote to the other churches validating the gospel minus circumcision in the law, that's when they wrote requesting to each of them that they would, re, that they would avoid these other elements of um, potential contention. And so that is the first 10 verses, and this is the continued argument that Paul is placing here. And I hope that you're following this argument closely. I hope that you're following Paul's logic closely, that you're seeing how he's attempting to validate the gospel through his own testimony, through the testimony of the church, because all of this will be heaped against what the Jews are, what these Judaizers are teaching to the Galatian church. And it's going to be vital that we understand all of this as we transition to Paul then using, okay, he's given his personal testimony. That's one way. He's given the testimony of the validation of the church. That's another way. And then he's going to doctrinally prove from the Old Testament of all places that salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. And that's where we're headed next. We've, we've seen the personal testimonies and the experiences. Now it's time for the doctrine. And we'll get there in the weeks to come. Three points, however, as we apply in our time this evening. Point number one, we understand that the battleground of the gospel is a battleground for truth. Point number two, the truth of the gospel transcends rank, position, or authority. Point number three, where all men seek truth, there will be fellowship, not battle. Let's talk about these three points together. Point number one, the battleground of the gospel is a battleground for truth. Paul said this in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. As it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are men and women out there with various motives, some genuine, some not. There are men and women that are preaching a false gospel in order to make money. There are men and women who are preaching a false gospel because they're confused or they've been misled. There are men and women who truly want the gospel destroyed. And so they are preaching a false gospel as a means of subverting the truth of God's word. But regardless of the character of these people, what we must always understand is that they are little more than messengers. This is the, that the battle is not about these people. The battle is about truth. The fight is for the souls of men. And the one who seeks to snatch them from, snatch these souls from the truth of the gospel is the father of lies, is Satan himself. We are wrestling against, it's a spiritual battle fought on a spiritual plane over truth and error. And the men and the women who are, who are engaged in this battle, whether it's us on the side of truth or whether it's those on the side of the false gospel, we are little more than messengers for our ideology. Truth or error. 
as Paul contended for the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was a group of Judaizers teaching a false gospel. These men were in the churches. They were teaching false doctrine. And Paul had dealt with this before. He had heard the false doctrine. He had taken the debate all the way to the council in Jerusalem. But all the while, Paul knew that there wasn't actually any debate, right? Paul had, had, had contended with false teachers. He contended in Jerusalem. He had stood up for the truth. But all the while, as Paul mentioned in this passage, there was no debate. The battle is not over what is true. And that's the point of Paul's defense of himself as it pertained to the gospel. Paul didn't give his testimony of conversion to convince the readers that his ideas were better than others. Paul didn't give his testimony so that they would be compelled to agree with him. Paul didn't give his testimony so that they could see the truth of the gospel was the same truth he held without wavering. Oh, excuse me, that's why he did give it, so that they could see that the truth which he taught was the truth. That without wavering, the truth of the gospel is the truth. He wasn't trying to win them to him. He was trying to win them to the truth. Paul knew that he was wrestling with not people, but ideas. Not the ideas of men, but the ideology of the wicked one. It is a battle not won by debate. It's a battle won by holding fast to the truth. The battle for truth. It's not a battle of superior arguments, superior charisma, superior minds. It's a battle for truth. One man once put it this way. The truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It will defend itself. And that's what Paul was doing. He wasn't seeking to concoct all sorts of reasons why you need to follow him or why he is right. He simply was there defending the truth by standing for the truth. If we approach the gospel as if the message itself needs to be proven, we've already given ground. Truth defends itself because it is true. I don't need to defend the fact that the sky is blue. We know the sky is blue. You may argue that the sky is green. You may argue that the sky is purple. You may argue that the sky is brown. But all I need to do to defend my position is to hold fast to the truth. I could waste my time trying to give you all sorts of technical reasons why your claims, your assertions that the sky is purple is wrong. But it's really a waste of time, right? Because all you have to do is look at the truth, look at the sky to know that it's blue. My efforts are best spent asserting what is true, not necessarily defending what is true. My efforts are best spent taking what is obvious and showing it to others and asserting it dogmatically. Paul went to Jerusalem to defend the gospel by asserting the gospel. He went to Jerusalem and proved the power of, a go- of the gospel apart from circumcision by showing the power of the gospel apart from circumcision. He went to Jerusalem and he argued his case by standing for what was right. But never at any moment was the battle over whether or not Paul's gospel was true because that's set in stone. The battle was attempting to help others see the content of the gospel. So the battleground of the gospel is a battleground for truth. Point number two, the truth of the gospel, it transcends rank, it transcends position, it transcends authority. Paul said in chapter 1, verse 8, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul asserted in this statement that it doesn't matter who it was that came preaching some other message. If they had some other message than the truth that we see clearly enumerated in God's Word and in the message of Jesus Christ about belief alone, that it is a false gospel. Even if it was an angel from heaven that asserted this false gospel, it's false. We mentioned already that Paul stood before these elders and apostles in Jerusalem. And as he did so, he was not concerned with what they thought because no matter what they concluded, the gospel doesn't change. So we wrestle on the battleground of truth. We wrestle against the ideologies of Satan and his minions. But we must understand as well that Satan and his minions have men on their side. And our declaration of the gospel 
will challenge these men. It will challenge their authority. It will challenge their truthfulness. It will challenge their own worldview, their own ideology. And that doesn't matter. Because God doesn't play favorites. Paul spoke of standing before men who were somebody. But that didn't matter. It didn't matter what position they held because God accepts nobody's person. It doesn't matter how many degrees a man has when he stands before God. He's not going to convince God that God was wrong in the gospel. It doesn't matter how many accomplishments a man has when he stands before the throne. When he stands before God to judgment, the gospel is the gospel and he won't be able to convince God otherwise. As Paul taught Titus, the same Titus who was with him in Jerusalem, about what it means to be a proper pastor in the church, notice what Paul said to Titus. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, reading through verse 11. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Paul speaks to Titus, and he tells him that deceivers, and note this, he says, especially they of the circumcision, right? That's these Judaizers, these false teachers, these Judaizers, were prevalent and they were, he said, subverting whole houses against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whole families would fall into the error of a Judaistic false gospel. And he says these mouths must be stopped. But how is it that these mouths were stopped? What advice did he give to Titus in how to stop their mouths? Well, we read it in verse 9. Look at it again. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. This is your means by which you defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not by knowing every error. You know, you can try. Uh, you, you, you can get a book and you can read about all the different cults and all the different false gospels, and you can read up on every single one of them, and you can work hard to know them, and, and you can have all of your ducks in a row. But the greatest defense, the greatest way you can defend the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply by telling it as it is. Is by simply telling others, I don't know where you're getting your idea of the gospel from, but let me open up John 3.16 and tell you what the Bible says. I don't know where you're getting this idea of faith plus works or faith plus baptism or faith plus communion or faith plus sacraments or faith plus name fill in the blank. I don't know where you're getting that from, but let's open the Bible to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 and see what the Bible has to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how you defend the gospel, by holding fast the faithful word through sound doctrine. If we want to defend the gospel, learn sound doctrine. The battleground of the gospel is a battleground for truth. The truth of the gospel transcends rank, position, authority. Third and finally, where all men seek the truth, there will be fellowship, not battle. The gospel is unchanging. It's a divine constant. Truth is not open to debate. What this means is that if two men are both genuinely pursuing truth, there will be fellowship. There will not be battle. If you cannot come to a proper conclusion with a man about what the gospel is, about what it means to accept the gospel, then somebody is without question wrong. If the gospel, if, if there is contention between you and another man about the gospel, then there's error somewhere. The battles rage, and where the battle is raging, there is error. The battle of the gospel comes in many names. 
And we considered some of these. I've mentioned many of them tonight. We talk about lordship, salvation, baptismal regeneration, uh, replacement theology, Arminianism, Calvinism, all of these different names for this battle over what is the gospel. And they're battles because there's error somewhere. Paul stood before the apostles and the elders and he proclaimed what he taught concerning the gospel. The elders had heard some things about Paul. Paul had heard some things about the elders. They talked about it and they came to the conclusion. And the conclusion is this. Salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. Plus nothing. And they said, yep, that's what we believe. And they said, yep, that's what we believe. That's what we're teaching. That's what we're teaching. And we're going to have to come about it a little bit different because these are Jews here and we have to... We have to reach the circumcision this way. And Paul says, well, I go about it a little bit different because these are Gentiles and you reach the Gentile world this way. And they say, that's okay. You reach the Gentile world and you emphasize those aspects of the gospel that are needful and not. So you don't have to tell them to get circumcised. You don't have to tell them to keep the law. All of those things, that's fine. Whereas a Jew who gets saved... As he starts to study the Old Testament, he realizes that the law is indeed holy and right and good. And he loves his Jewish heritage. The Messiah is a Jew. Christ still has a plan for the Jews. He's returning and he will save the Jews. And as they understand this, maybe they wanted to maintain their loyalty to the law. And that is okay. That's okay. They had different methods by which different emphases, but the gospel, when you boil it down, was salvation by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Christ. And when they realized that they were both preaching that message, they extended the right hand of fellowship one to another and there was peace. If you can't come to that peace, it's because there's error somewhere. Would to God we would be discerning but also gracious. Would to God that we could discern the difference between arguments over all of the natural ramifications of one's salvation or explicit qualifications for salvation. If a person's qualifications for salvation is anything other than belief on Christ, then they're anathema. Let them be accursed, Paul said. If we disagree over some of the natural outworking of what salvation does in the life of a believer, that's okay. We can be there and still extend fellowship. The battle of the gospel is a battle that will not end until the day that we are in heaven. You know, as soon as one error is rooted out, another error will quickly take its place. The battle of the gospel demands a heavenly perspective. First, understanding that it's about truth not just ideas. Second, recognizing that truth doesn't change regardless of who it is that's trying to change it, regardless of man's opinion. Finally, discerning the difference between a false gospel and just a different emphasis. Rejecting the former while extending fellowship to the latter. This is the gospel. And may God help us to know the truth, love the truth, stand in the truth, hold fast to the truth, and then reflect it to a lost and dying world. Let's pray.